So, let us get into Exodus chapter 20, where are we, 26? Is that right? We did 25 last week, right? Just making sure people are paying attention instead of just zoning out. So, we're in chapter 26 this week. Uh, what, what are we in in Exodus? What, what, is, what is going on in this chunk of scripture that we're looking at? You have to speak up. That, that, was the, that was the previous section, yes, the elaboration of the Ten Commandments. And then in 25, it's moved into something very specific. Yes, the construction of the tabernacle. And tabernacle is a fancy religious word for tent. The construction of the tent. In fact, scripture uses the uh, three terms to describe this thing that's being built. Sometimes it's called, well, one time it's called the sanctuary. Um, I think Mikdosh is the word. One time it's called the dwelling, Mishkan. And other times it's just called the tent, the Ohel, the tent of God. So three terms, but it's all describing this one thing. And this is going to be how Israel fulfills uh, their mandate to be a people among whom God dwells. That's the purpose. Exodus is all about their themes of God coming down and dwelling with his people. When they were in Pharaoh's um, service, he came down and saw the misery of his people, the text says. And now he's come down on Mount Sinai and literally to, to have a face-to-face -face encounter with Moses. And at this point, he's giving them orders for how he is going to come down permanently and to dwell among them right smack dab in the middle of his people, the tribes of Israel. So we looked at last week uh, a couple of the implements that he started talking about uh, the actual ark and the table where the bread of the presence is and the lampstand, the menorah, the tree, it would be right in the middle. So he's, he's described the things that would be in the inner section, the Holy of Holies. Now he's going to sort of work his way out. So chapter 26 here, he's going to describe the actual tent itself that's going to house those things. And then in chapter 27, it's going to move outward and describe the courtyard and the altar and some of the priestly functions that are going to take place out there. So he's moving out in a concentric uh, pattern from most holy place outwards. And we said the tabernacle is a horizontal representation of a vertical reality. So the tabernacle has concentric circles of holiness that you can enter into just as Mount Sinai had concentric levels of holiness that some of Israel could go up to. People stayed outside, the elders could come up some, the chief priests, the, you know, Aaron and, and his sons could come up more, and then Moses and Joshua could come up to the top. So <clears throat> there's, there's that, the tabernacle is like a mobile Mount Sinai, and it will be throughout Israel's history. So let's read and you'll get a sense of what I'm talking about here. <clears throat> Chapter 26. God says, make the tabernacle with ten curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, with cherubim worked into them by a skilled craftsman. Cherubim. What are cherubim? Well, anytime you see I-M on the end of a word in the Old Testament, that's plural. It's like our letter S on the end of a word. So it's a cherub. So these are cherubim. These are multiple cherubs. So what's a cherub? In English mythology, a cherub is a little baby with wings that flies around and they're in art and paintings and things like that. 
have no idea where that came from. Cherubs are incredibly fierce, uh, almost like these beastly warrior things. You know, some some depictions uh, make them almost like the Sphinx in Egypt, like a lion with this fearsome head of a person and these wings that come off. So they're, they're if anything, they're these terrifying creatures. They're, they're definitely not fat babies. Uh, they, they have wings, but they're huge wings and they're frightening wings and they're powerful things. So when you think of it, think of a cherubim as this this, you know, the one in Eden, the last time we actually saw a cherubim was God placed it between Eden and the entrance where he had driven out Adam and Eve with a flaming sword to keep them from returning back. So cherubim represent that border between the spiritual reality of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. And so that's what he's saying. Weave this, craft these images into this structure, this tent in the middle of this courtyard of the tabernacle. Alright, so the cherubim there are immediately hearkening back. We talked last week, there's all kinds of creation imagery. There's all kinds of Eden imagery worked into the tabernacle. This is just one other example. Uh, verse 2, all the curtains are to be the same size. 28 cubits and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edge of the end curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain, 50 loops on the end of the other set with the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so the tabernacle is a unit. So it's this construction of a frame of these curtains. The whole thing is mobile. This is not a permanent structure. This is a tent and it's got panels and it's, uh, it's meant to be able to be put up and taken down. That's why there's all this emphasis on clasps and rings and curtains, because you can't move walls around when you're in the run in the wilderness, but you can fold up curtains and you can bring down poles and clasps and rings. You don't need nails, you don't need screws, you don't need duct tape, you don't need any of this stuff to put this thing together. It, it hangs, it's a mobile structure. Uh, make, verse seven, make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 all together. All 11 curtains are to be the same size, 30 cubits long, 4 cubits wide. Remember, a cubit's the length from the tip of your finger to your elbow, give or take. And in the ancient world, it would have been shorter because they were shorter. Join five of the curtains together into one set, and the other six into another set. Put the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make the 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set, and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red, and over that a covering of hides of sea cows, or porpoise skins, or badger skins, depending on what your translation says. Uh, we talked about it last week. This is most likely the, the hide of an aquatic mammal, like a dugong, which is kind of like a manatee, but in the Red Sea area. But regardless, this is the covering that's going to go over the tent itself. So you've got the tent with this fine linen crafted with cherubim, like a very expensive, very ornate thing. And then over that, laid over it, is going to be this covering with this uh, waterproofing material. This is going to be weatherproofing as well. So inside, on the outside, you'll see this covering. On the inside, you'll see this ornate, rich, gold, uh, inlaid, blue, purple, scarlet, you know, all this kind of stuff that's very ornate on the inside. 
And he goes on to say, verse 15, make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle. Make 40 silver bases to go under them. Two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, uh, the north side of the tabernacle, make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is the west end of the tabernacle. Make two frames for the corners of the far end. These two corners, they must be double from the bottom, all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. Both should be like that. So there will be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. So the tabernacle is all inlaid with gold inside. And it's going to sit on these bases, these, these structures, these, these footings of silver. All right? I'll mention why that's important in just a minute. But you've got a gold thing sitting, literally sitting on top of silver. Uh, verse 26. Also make crossbar, let's see now. Yeah. Also make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west of the tabernacle. The center crossbars extend from end to end at the middle of the frames. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Now this is important because we're getting all this detail and we're like, okay, okay, this must be blueprints. They're not blueprints. The, there's so much detail that's left out of the tabernacle construction. You can't build a recreation of the tabernacle just by reading this text. That's why if you look at models where people have rebuilt them, there's a lot of guesswork that they have to put into and no two models will work the same because there are details that are left out of the construction of the tabernacle. And this has puzzled uh, interpreters for a long time. You know, They say, why is there so much detail but not enough detail to actually reconstruct it? Why does it not give us the specifics of some of the things that we need, but it goes into great detail about the other parts that we need? And there's different people put forth different reasons. Uh, interpreters that lean towards the mystical or towards the, the allegorical have said that it only gives us these details because each one symbolizes something in the universe. Like Josephus took that approach. I think Philo said that it was symbolic of like the, the celestial, you know, the twelve signs of the zodiac and the seven planets that are visible and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Christian interpreters have had a field day with this and they tried to find Jesus in every little detail. Um, and others have just said, well, this is a later corrupted text that got worked into the you know, story by a later interpreter and you know, that's the more text critical approach. But what's happening is in this section, we're given enough detail that mentally we can put together a general um, we can, we can put together a general idea of what this thing would have looked like and what it would have consisted of materially. We, even though we can't get the exact pattern, but we don't have to, because this wasn't given to show the people how to build the tabernacle. It's not like they would forget if, you know, the next generation, oh, how do we do it? We better open and turn to the book. No, that would have been passed on through the families. Moses saw the pattern. Moses knew the pattern. Moses would oversee the building of the tabernacle. And then after that, they would all know how to do it because they would have to do it regularly as they moved in camp. So what we're getting is enough visual to, to, to put it in our mind's eye and to see it. And then that gives us the ability to see the theological significance in the, the details that we can see. 
such as the gold and silver and the bronze, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But it's really important to see that. Because some people would say, oh, just glaze over, just skip this part, because this is all directions on how to build the tabernacle. And it's not. It, it is instructions on how to build the tabernacle, but not for the purpose of us to build the tabernacle, but for us to see what went into it and what it was constructed of. Verse 31, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into it by a skilled craftsman. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. So again, gold at the top, silver at the bottom. Uh, the curtain, hang the curtain from the fast, place the ark of the testimony behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. That's a great underlying verse. Just note that. That'll be really important in Matthew's gospel. Put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony in the most holy place. So put the lid on the Ark. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle. And put the lampstand opposite to it on the south side. So the table and the lampstand that they talked about in the last chapter, now you're going to put those right outside. So you can have the room, and in the room you're going to have the Ark. And then on top of the Ark is the atonement cover. That's two winged cherubims facing each other with their wings extended, that will be God's throne. And then outside of that room, dividing that will be a curtain, blue, purple, scarlet, with cherubim woven into it. That will separate God's throne room, God's very presence, from the holy place. The holy place, most holy place. Older translations say holy of holies because that's how you'd say something is most holy in Hebrew. It's the holy of holies. So right outside of that then, on the north side, put the table with the bread. South side, put the lamp that's the menorah that was talked about in the last one. That's the tabernacle. That is the center of Israel's entire worship apparatus. It's a two-room tent. There's a table, there's a lamp, and inside there's this Ark of the Covenant. That's it. Later emperors would be astounded when they go into the temple after it was, the tabernacle was built to a temple, throw back the Holy of Holies, expecting to see this icon, this image of the God, this idol, and they, they would say, there's nothing in here. This is empty. What's, what's the deal? That's part of what God is, is expressing through this with Israel, is that this is still the God who can't be contained in the tent. He's still the God who can't be contained in one single space. He's still the Lord of all creation, the God who overthrew the gods of Egypt, and he's coming to dwell with his people. He is imminent, but he is also transcendent. And that you can't be limited there as well. That's the theology of the temple, theology of the tabernacle. And it's the theology of Judeo-Christian view of God. Because he's, he's, he's infinite, but he's also imminent. Both at the same time. So then, verse 36, for the entrance, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet and yarn, finally twisted linen, the work of an embroiderer, make gold hooks for this curtain, five hooks of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, and cast five bronze bases for them. Now, outside of that, build an altar of acacia wood, chapter 27. The culture of acacia wood, three cubits high. It's to be square, five cubits long, five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. So we've moved from silver and gold. Now we're moving to bronze for the things outside. Make all its utensils of bronze as pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat, forks, and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it's halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar, overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the ring so they will be on two sides of the altar when it's carried. 
Make the altar hollow out of boards. It's to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. So now, this is the altar where the sacrifices will be done. This is the big bronze altar that will be outside the, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place in the courtyard, all bronze, big, basically it's a big outdoor grill. That's what it says with the, the, the uh, lattice work or the, the, what does it say? Um, say again? Great. Yes, great. First four, yes. four. Grating for it. That's what now he says. Yeah, grating. That's like a grill. That's a grating. That's where you put the thing on the altar, you burn it. Well, to keep from there being a big heap of ashes, you put it on a grating. The ashes fall through, the thing burns up, the meat's cooked, you forks to remove the ashes. That's all this stuff. This is an outdoor barbecue set. It really is. This is a this is God's barbecue uh, contraption, and it's portable. That's why he says make it hollow, because a big bronze altar would be immobile. So it's a hollow bronze altar. So it's this frame up, set up thing, like a tailgate party, whatever you want to think about it. That can move around to cook clean way to make sure that the meat that you and your family were eating was clean. Was ceremonially clean, was sacrificially clean. You would alter, you would offer a portion of it to God. Leviticus would get all into that. First seven chapters of Leviticus will tell us all about that. You'd give your portion to God, and then the rest, when you give your portion to God, you give a portion to the priests, because that's how they ate, and then the rest you would keep and your family would eat. This is how Israel ate. This is part of their economy. So it's not just God wants you to offer sacrifices for the sake of offering sacrifices. No, the sacrifices were to, here's the irony, in the ancient Near East, the God's temples were where you fed the gods. You would go and present your stuff to the gods, and that was literally feeding them. Because the one thing that the gods couldn't do in the ancient Near East is get their own food. That's why they had humans to do the work of the plowing and the sowing and the raising of animals and all that, and present food to the gods and then the humans could eat some as well. What Israel's system kind of flips on its head, God is the one who provides food for the people. He provided manna and quail in the wilderness. He's providing or ceremonially, providing their meat for them, twins, giving them the ability to eat, giving them the ability to live. So there's a lot going on just in the directions that we see for this big grill that's outside of the tent. I mean, think we, we, we have all the terms like tabernacle and bronze altar and the, all, you know, these are terms that we have invested 4,000 years of theology into. So it's good to strip those away sometimes and think, okay, this is the grill that was outside of the tent. That gives you a sense of you camped. It gives you kind of a much more of a sense of what's going on here. God is living in a tent among people who are living in tents in the wilderness. This is the type of God this is. This is not the God that dwells in the palace made by slave labor in Egypt. All right? This is the God. This is, this is who Yahweh is revealing himself as. Uh, let's look at a couple more details. We'll tie it all together. Now, verse 9. Make a courtyard for the tabernacle. The south side should be 100 cubits long. And to have cur curtains of finely twisted linen with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and bands on the posts. The north side shall have 100 cubits long and is to have curtains with 20 posts and 20 bronze bases with silver hooks and bands on the posts. So the courtyard 
that's being built, this fence is being built, and on the fence now, the bottom is bronze and the tops are silver, right? In the inner tabernacle, the top was gold and the bottom was silver. Now we're moving out, the top is silver, the bottom is bronze. That lets us know the concentric holiness thing, right? It's, it's, it's like that's a way of symbolizing the verticality of the mountain of approaching God's holiness. The outer court sits on bronze. Bronze is a common earthly material, an earthen thing. It wasn't a precious metal, but it was a useful metal. That's what the altar is made out of as well. It's where earthly comes into contact with the holy. So the buffer then between the bronze and the gold is the silver. Silver is the next layer. So it's the tops of the curtains, and inside it's the bottom of the tabernacle. You see that concentricness? And then the tabernacle is the bottom is silver, and then everything it's constructed of in the inside is gold. So there's this moving in layers of holiness from the outside to the inside. God is doing that because all of this is an object lesson to teach that the common is, is marred by the sinfulness of humanity, but it can still approach the holy, which is God himself, but it can't do so freely. It can't do so of its own accord. It has to do so by moving through these concentric layers of holiness. So you can't just approach God with boldness and confidence under this covenant. Because God is, 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 His holiness will overwhelm you. His holiness will consume you because they are sin, still sinful, fallen, earthly, bronze people, so to speak. And He is the pure, refined, gold holiness of God. How does that meet without overwhelming the worshiper? This is the God who's exploding at the top of Mount Sinai, literally, while this is all going on. Like a pyroclastic flash. If you ever see a volcano erupt and there's lightning within it, because all the ash is going up in the atmosphere, it's ionizing and it creates this lightning storm and it's terrifying. It looks like a mountain that's burning and exploding and spitting lightning. That's kind of what's going on here. And Moses is inside that. And everybody else is camped out at the bottom freaking out. So this is all of the holiness that's, that's being, you know, if you're reading this out loud, play uh, an MP3 of a thunderstorm. You know, or like this, like just the, the really intense music in a in an epic film, like Gladiator or something, you know, play like the really uh, emotional part of just to get a sense of the overwhelming awe of what's being uh, given to Israel right now. Last section. Uh, for the entrance on the courtyard, for the entrance to the courtyard, um, provide a curtain 20 cubits long of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of an embroidery. Four posts and four bases. All the posts around the courtyard are to have silver bands and hooks and bronze bases. The courtyard should be 100 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, with curtains of finely twisted linen, five cubits high, bronze bases. All the other articles used in the service of the tabernacle, whatever their function, including all the tent pegs for uh, it and those for the courtyard, are to be of bronze. Everything sitting on bronze. Verse 20, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps may be kept burning. It's the lampstand inside the tent. In the tent of meeting, outside the curtain that is in front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening till morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for generations to come. From evening to morning. That's when it's nighttime. That's when it's dark. That's when God says, keep the lamp in the testimony burning 
Why? To give light to Israel? No, it would be enclosed in a tent, surrounded by a courtyard. So it's not to give them light, it's to symbolize, to teach them that even in the darkest of dark, even in the night, God is there in their midst. Even if they can't see him, God is there in their midst, burning continually. That's what the lampstand, the menorah, that's what it's for. Presence of God. But he's doing that through the offerings they are bringing him of their olive oil. God's entering into this cooperative relationship with Israel. God could have built all of this himself. God could have just beamed down a tabernacle. God could have done anything in that you can think of. He could have done. Yet he chose to do it this way. So that means that there must be something in all of this that's important for them and, as the book of Hebrews tells us, for us as well. That God was building a long-term plan into all of this. He was teaching them through, like Hebrews will talk about, these things all being shadows of the reality that's to come in Jesus. So if this is a timeline, and this is eternity, and this is the, the appearance of Jesus on the earth, then Jesus is casting a shadow, the light of eternity, casting a shadow back into time. And that is what we're seeing as we read the Old Testament, these hints and shadows, these antitypes is the theological term. And then the, the antitypes are all uh, faint reflections or shadows of the true type, which is Jesus himself. So that's what we're seeing in all of this. That's why you can look for things uh, in this that may be Christological. The curtain, the finely embroidered curtain made of scarlet, purple, and broad, um, scarlet, purple, and blue. Very expensive in the ancient world. Four mass dyes were invented. They used the dyes that they made were from grinding up the shells of snails that are throughout the Mediterranean. This is how they got their dyes. And you couldn't make a lot of it at a time. The snails aren't big. They don't have a lot of stuff in them. They're mostly shells. So you grind it up, you make this dye, you dye stuff with it. That stuff's really expensive. When we think about colorful things, we don't think it's very expensive. In the ancient world, color was expensive. Especially blues, scarlets, purples. That's why it was the sign of royalty. That's why royal robes were, you know, those deep, dark colors. So all of that, plus the gold, plus the cherubim, all of these things are communicating that God dwells among his people, but he is separated from them. There's a separation there, and they don't get to choose when they can go in and have an audience with him. He chooses that, and he'll choose it through the holidays, the feasts, the festivals, the priesthood, all of those things that are going to be laid out in the rest of this section and in the book of Leviticus. So then, when we read in Matthew's Gospel, as soon as Jesus cried out, it is finished, and there was an earthquake, and the rocks split, and the tombs were opened, and the curtain of the temple, the same curtain, was torn in two, and it says from top to bottom, that in and of itself is making an incredible theological statement. If it had been torn from bottom to top, that would be the work of people. Tearing it from top down could only be the work of God. Why is that significant? Because that was the point when the final sacrifice was made. The last sacrifice that God would ever accept in the history of all of the universe. That for, you know, thousands of years, 
God had had this system in place, and then for at least 1,400 years, this system had been in place. And then finally, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, that was the last time God would ever honor a sacrifice in his temple in Jerusalem. And it was when he himself was nailed to the cross outside the city gate by the trash heap where the criminals, where the cursedness, where the, where the scapegoat was to be led off in the uh, tour. So all of the symbolism in the New Testament, it's just, it explodes in meaning if we know the Old Testament. If we don't know the Old Testament, then it just becomes the Easter pageant play. We're all familiar with it. We just go through the motions because that's what happened. If we know the Old Testament, we know the imagery and the symbolism and the biblical theology and the world of the Torah, then when we see what the New Testament writers say, and you see what Jesus does, and you see the actions that happen, it brings it to life. It's like watching black and white, grainy definition, 1950s television versus HD, 3D, IMAX, whatever. I mean, that's, that's, that's the difference between reading the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament and reading the New Testament after having gone through and immersed yourself in the Old Testament. So the more you do that, the more, the sharper your New Testament reading becomes. We've talked about the priests keeping the light burning. Next week, we're going to look at those priests themselves because they're going to get some garments and some clothes that have some specific meaning. And then they're going to get consecrated in chapter 29, dedicated. Then there's going to be some stuff about incense. Um, it's going to be really important. It's the most important perfume-making section you'll ever read. So be sure to be here for that. But we're out of time. So. Everybody have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next week. Take a look at Justin's book if you want to enter into the contest to win it. It's going to be right here, and I'll see you next week.